The reading this evening is taken from Luke chapter 1, 21, sorry, starting to read at verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things began to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Thank you, Jane, very much. It's a delight to welcome Andrew again this evening. Andrew, known to many of us. And uh, Andrew and Sarah are now living in Tewkesbury, so a little bit further for you to come. But thank you so much for driving through this horrendous weather today and being with us tonight. Very, very grateful. Looking forward so much to what you have to share with us. And uh, Andrew, although living some distance away, is still involved amongst uh, some of the things that are connected strongly with us here, not least Mercy Mission as Chair of Trustees and uh, an opportunity for me to say thank you again for your continued involvement with that. And I know Charlie appreciates it greatly. So we invite you now to come and to bring God's word to us. So as um, Paul indicated, after 28 years in Solihull and um, leading the bridge in Dickens Heath Church, uh, a year ago I retired. And um, I discovered that being retired doesn't mean you aren't doing anything, it just means nobody's paying you for doing it. Um, so we moved to Tewkesbury, and um, at around that time, um, Sarah's Renault car was due for a service. So we took it into the Renault garage just down the road here, I'm sure you know, just down the road. And she, she'd been saying for a while, Andrew, when I, when I next change my car, I'd like, I think I should get an electric car. So we happened to be in there for this service, and we, we ended up talking to one of the salesmen, and, you know, they offer you a very good deal on the car. So we bought an electric car, a Renault Zoe. I can commend it to you. It's great. It's, it's great. Great car for getting around the town and very environmentally friendly. So, and then at the same time, you know, we moved, we bought a new house on a, on a new estate in Tewkesbury. So 
we, we realise with our new house that they're built to different environmental standards, and particularly the insulation. I mean, the, our house never gets cold. It's, it's amazing, really, how they've designed them to retain the heat. So these, th these two experiences started to make us think a bit more about the environment and to read stuff about the environmental crisis, as it's sometimes referred to. Climate change is the phrase you would all have heard. And as we started to read about it, I think like most people who go down this road, you are shocked by just how serious this is. It is... Not it, it really is an emergency. It is worse than you thought it was going to be. It is, to use one of the phrases, an existential threat to humanity. Which sounds pretty sober stuff, doesn't it? Pretty sober stuff. Um, I wonder how much you have you know, understood about what is starting to change on this planet on which we all live. Um, but when you, when you read about the changes that will take place in weather, in sea levels, in temperatures, in the effect on our food supplies and water supplies, on the need for millions of people to migrate away from where they live, about the, the impact of pollution, you, you, you kind of... It's a bit mind-blowing, really. And... You know, I would have thought of myself, as I trust you think of yourself, as a reasonably intelligent, well-informed person who follows the news, and yet you realise that you haven't, um, you haven't really grasped this. And, I, and you feel a bit guilty about it. You know, I thought, for 20 years I've been a pastor of a church. I've never spoken on this subject. I've never related this subject to my Christian faith in a meaningful way. Um, and yet, this issue, uh, and I think now I can say this with some degree of confidence, this issue is clearly the greatest issue facing humanity in this coming century. So what is the church going to say about it? What is God saying about it? What does it mean to be a Christian under these circumstances? It's had a kind of radical effect on really how I, I kind of look on life, really, and... and what is in the, in the next couple of generations to follow. So, hang on a minute, I, I need my zapper, don't I, to um, move the slides on. Here we go. Um, so, I'm sure you pick up stuff in the media, and I'm sure you have... Um, uh, you know what the experts are saying. The ex you, know, you can read the stuff that the experts are saying in the media. So. Um, we are in a planetary emergency. Uh, based on sober scientific analysis, we are deeply within a climate emergency state, but people are not aware of it. And this is it. You know, I'm sure you've all watched David Attenborough. You've watched David Attenborough, haven't you? You've, um, you've seen the bushfires in Australia. You've perhaps seen the floods in India. I mean, there's a level of awareness amongst people, but it hasn't really sunk in. 
And despite these kind of statements, I mean, this was only issued last year, 11,000 scientists uh, helped write this declaration. Well, that's a lot of people who've got a view on this, isn't it? They said, scientists have a moral obligation to clearly warn humanity of any great existential threat. Based on this obligation and the data presented below, we herein proclaim a clear and unequivocal declaration that a climate emergency exists on planet Earth. Well, they, they couldn't make it much plainer than that, could they? Um, we can't kind of say, well, you know, nobody told us. But all of this stuff, I'm, I'm aware that this stuff can all seem a bit, you know, well, it's all interesting facts, isn't it? And um, it's so kind of sobering facts, and yeah, we, it's probably important we know about it. But, it. but it doesn't necessarily get you in here, does it? You kind of, okay, well, I know a bit more about this in my head, but it hasn't got me kind of emotionally connected. And I suppose what made a difference for me was Oscar. Oscar is our grandson. Uh, he is one year old, and he is the sweetest little boy in the world. He's, he's just lovely. He's such a happy little boy. And... Um, and he, he lives less than a mile away from us in Tewkesbury, so we get to see him quite a lot. And, and part of the delight of our grandparent years is to play with Oscar. And seeing him grow over this last year, I keep thinking, so what kind of world is Oscar going to grow up to live in? I'm sure many of you here have got grandchildren, isn't it? You've got children, you've got, we've got grandchildren. And what kind of can get to you more is, so what world am I passing on to my children and grandchildren? Uh, so it gets personal. It gets, it gets personal. Um, so... Uh, as I, as, I, as I read about this stuff more and thought about it, obviously I kind of think, well, what does the Bible say about this? I mean, if, if this is such a major issue for humanity and God's world, is there something in the Bible that would, would give me, that would give us some direction here? So I, I went on a bit of a search, and um, from the passage that was read to us. Perhaps we could just look at these verses again. Jesus said this, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's, those are quite powerful words, aren't they? From the Lord. And well, it doesn't take too much imagination, does it, to relate them to the circumstances which I've just described to you. Uh, nations will be in anguish and perplexity. And you are beginning to see that at the roaring and tossing of the sea. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about the sea in a moment. 
But people, how about this? I mean, these are strong words, aren't they? People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. Well, you know, you read this stuff, you will be apprehensive of what is coming on the world. People are becoming more apprehensive of what is coming on the world. But at that time, you'll see the Son of Man. And when these things begin to take place, here I felt was a key word, really, for us as Christians. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads. There are various reactions, as I said, to when you understand more about this. There are various reactions that you can have to it. I'll perhaps go on to say a little bit more about that, you know, denial and despair. But Jesus is, is saying to us, stand up and lift up your heads. Just what does that mean then? What is he actually encouraging us to do? Let me just say a little bit more about, uh, uh, about this, what we might call the, the climate crisis or global warming. Um, I mean, global warming is happening now. The last five years have been the warmest years ever recorded on the planet. And 2019 was the hottest year ever experienced in Europe, where we are. 2019, year, 2019 on average, was the hottest year that we have ever experienced in Europe since records began. Now, one of the things that I realize, and I, I, I wonder if you must be in this place, you hear people talk about this, and they talk about, you know, we mustn't let the temperature go above two degrees, or, you know, our target must be to keep global warming below three degrees. And you think, well, it doesn't sound too serious, does it? I mean, most of the time in the UK, we'd be quite happy if it was three degrees warmer, wouldn't we? I mean, it would be a bit more like Spain. What is the problem? What's the problem? But th these little numbers completely confuse the significance of what we're talking about. Um, today, our global temperatures are already above what they call one degree before industrialization took place. At two degrees, at just two degrees more as a global average, the ice sheets will melt. There will be unbearable heat waves across many parts of the world, and the equatorial regions will become uninhabitable by human beings because of the heat and the humidity. At three degrees, the Sahara will start to extend into southern Europe, into southern Spain, into Italy, into Greece. You know, the, there will be droughts, so those, those countries will begin to look more like the Sahara. And at four degrees, with the melting of the ice caps and the water expanding due to the greater temperatures, major, air, major coastal cities around the world will start to flood. Miami, Dakar, Shanghai, Hong Kong, and, and a lot of the east coast of England at just four degrees. At just four. So when you hear these little numbers and you think, well, four degrees doesn't sound too bad, four degrees is a catastrophe. So that's the kind of thing that, that you begin to realize is, um, is, is actually the, what, what we're facing. So some thoughts about how we kind of respond to this. And it, part of it is having, and this shouldn't be too difficult for us as Christians, some of this is having a fresh appreciation of this creation in which we live and which God has made for us. Um, I quite like this phrase, nature is not a place to visit, it's our home. 
isn't it? I mean, we're so much urban people, aren't we? I have been an urban person all my life. I've, I've never li really lived in the countryside. I mean, now I've got a farm the other side of my house. That's a new experience for me. There's a farm. We, we are right on the edge of the estate and the other side of the fence, there's a farm. That is the closest I have been to, to the countryside in my entire life. You know, I've, London, London Solihull has been my experience. And here's another, I, I like to put it this way, the earth is our life support system. In just the same way as that spaceman is entirely dependent on that, what he is enclosed in, in his spacesuit, that is what the planet is to us as human beings. Everything that we depend on for life is within that system, isn't it? Our energy, our air, our water, our food. Without the planet and those things, we can't survive, just as a spaceman couldn't survive without his spacesuit. Um, so, when you follow through on some of the things that are, uh, just to finish off with the bad news here, shall I, so let's go back one. So, these are some of the predictions. By 2022, the cost of climate disasters around the world is expected to be 10 times the level of international aid. So has said the Red Cross. Uh, I talk about drought. Loss of human habitats will lead to increasing conflict over land, oh, sorry, over land, water, and other natural resources. Because human beings are going to get squeezed into smaller habitable spaces. So this is the big consequence. The number of refugees is predicted to rise from 15 million today to 150 million people by 2050. And that's probably at the lower end of estimates. Now, you will know, if you follow the media at all, how much angst and aggravation and debate and argument there was over the last year or two when a million people sort of fled Syria and parts of Africa to migrate to Europe. I mean, it's still in the news, isn't it? It was in the news this week about people trying to cross the channel. You know, these, this is a migration of a couple of million people. But in the next 30 years, at least 150 million people will be displaced. Where will these people go? Where will these people go? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's unimaginable, isn't it? It's unimaginable. Where, where will we resettle? And this is just for starters. This is just for starters. Where will we resettle that number of people? Um, and where, how will we feed them? Let me just go on to this. Where will we feed them? Because the consequence of climate change is we, we can't grow the, as much stuff. Uh, agricultural productivity will decline. Uh, water will become more scarce, so we can't irrigate as much as we do now. So food insecurity becomes part of that problem. Why is it all happening? Why is it happening? Let me just say something briefly on this. So you think, well, how, how can this all be happening? How can, we let, how can we let this happen to our world? I mean, what's the, what's the government doing about it, I suppose, is the first one of the reactions, isn't it? Well, what's the government doing about it? What's the United Nations doing about it? You know, surely we've got the technology to solve it. Um, well, the problem, as you must be aware, is, is this. It's the, the basic science is this. 
as we burn our fossil fuels, I don't know what keeps jumping on with it, as we burn our fossil fuels, and we're all doing it, aren't we? We're all driving our cars, we're all flying in planes, uh, we're all heating our homes, uh, we are burning coal and oil and gas. And that produces carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Over the last century, and particularly over the last 40 years, we have put vast quantities of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in, in the atmosphere, and that heats up the planet. That heats up the planet. So our whole way of life, and this is the thing that kind of gets you, our whole way of life is producing this crisis. Because what are we suddenly going to stop doing? Driving our cars, getting on planes, going to work, heating our homes? What, what, our whole way of life is based around burning fossil fuels. And you may say, well, I thought we are going into all this recycling energy. And we are, in, 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 we are doing some good stuff, but the contribution of that energy as a percentage is still minimal. Minimal. So we're burning all of this stuff. And then the other thing, which is really eye-opening when you understand it, is the fact that the way of our diets is, is adding to the crisis. Because 25% of all these emissions are caused by agriculture. Sadly to say, the cows. Particularly the cows. Because they burp, don't they? They burp methane. And um, so what we eat, particularly meat, in the, uh, is a major, major contributor to this crisis. And then on top of that, you'd have to say our consumer lifestyles. We are just buying more and more stuff. And we buy stuff that's made all over the world, don't we? We buy an amazing amount of stuff that's made in China. We think, oh, it's made in China. Yeah, and it's been shipped by from China as well. It's been flown in from China. It's been put on a boat from China. Um, and what do we do with our consumer lifestyles? We use the stuff for a year, and then we throw it away. We throw our clothes away. We throw the packaging away. We, yes, we are incredibly wasteful in our Western lifestyle. So that's it. That is where we're at. I mean, I, I, could, I could depress you even more, but I won't. You know, I'll stop here. I think you've probably got the message, really, as to what this is about. So you can... I don't know how you react to that. I wonder how you react to that. There are three classic reactions to this. Uh, the first is denial. This is Trump's strategy, if you haven't noticed. This is Trump's strategy. Uh, it's not really happening. It's a hoax. And, and the terrible thing, you know, is that the fossil fuel companies have promoted this actively through the media uh, to say, well, it's not, it's not really, really a problem. Despite the fact that 11,000 scientists have stood up in the last year and said, oh, it really, really is a problem, you still get people saying, no, no, it's not really a problem. And, um, and of course, you may think about, Andrew, this is just so terrible, and there's nothing I can do about it. Let's just forget about it. You know, I just, let's just carry on with life as normal. Let's just carry on with life as normal. Because it's too difficult to think about. You know, it's just depressing. Uh, we don't like thinking about depressing stuff, so let's just pretend it's not happening. And I suppose you can live like that, can't you? I suppose you can live like that. And the closer you are to death, 66, I now sometimes think, well, perhaps I am a bit closer to death. You know, perhaps, it will, you know, perhaps I'll be dead anyway. Perhaps I'll be dead anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But I, as a Christian, I kind of think, no, this doesn't really work as a strategy, does it? This doesn't really work as a strategy. 
I mean, we may not often use this word in disciple. Well, perhaps we do use this word in discipleship, but, but you know, part of becoming a Christian to me is that God helps you to become a responsible person. Yes, a loving person, a peaceful person, a kind person, but actually becoming a Christian should make us responsible people. And denial is not an act of responsibility. And of course, the next reaction that you see, and this, this is where love and care comes into it, people start to despair. They think, this is so bad, and hope seems so sparse, this is just terrible. And um, you, you, see, you begin to see a little bit of this. If you follow some of the stories, we talk to people, it, this can be quite, people can be quite frightening and despaired about it, despairing about it. So the third reaction would be to find some direction. Where do we go? Where do we go? Where can people find direction faced with this situation that we face as humanity and as on our planet? And here, the... I have to... I mean, you think, well, Andrew, you've been a pastor. You're supposed to say this kind of thing. But... It's made me realize that the Christian faith actually provides the most coherent answer to how humanity needs to respond to this. And none of this is revolutionary theology or biblical understanding. This is kind of basic Christianity. Because our faith is based on honoring God as our creator, who's given us this creation, the great commandment is to love him and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray these words, your will be done on earth. That phrase has come home to me in a different way. I mean, we, we say this prayer, don't we? we? We take it, I hate to say it, but we do kind of take it for granted when we say the Lord's Prayer. But now every time when I pray the Lord's Prayer, we do that every Sunday in our new church, we, we pray the prayer, your will be done on earth. That, that phrase kind of lingers with me more. What is God's will on earth? Peace, justice, mercy, humility. Let's just say a little bit more about these three things. Um, no, I've lost a... Oh, I've lost some slides. I've lost some slides. Oh, I wonder how that's happened. Uh, not to worry, I'll talk, I'll talk to it. So, uh, the creator and our creation. So, you will know verses, famous verses, Genesis 1. God created the heavens on the earth and the earth. Psalm 24. To the Lord, beyond, to the Lord belong the earth and everything in it. You know, mankind has, has treated nature as just a free resource that we can do with as we like. We have forgotten the Bible's teaching that we are here as stewards of the creation. If you, if you, if you follow the, new, the, the teaching of the Old Testament, how the Jews were taught to live, they were taught to be stewards over the creation. Sadly, a lot of people have 
wanted to misinterpret Genesis 1 where it says, and God gave them dominion. Oh, we think dominion, that's power. That's the right to do what we like with creation. But dominion doesn't mean, yeah, you're free to do as you like. The underlying sense of dominion and the way you see it's unfolded in the Old Testament is it's about stewardship. It's about caring for what God has given us. And I, and I cannot think of any more powerful motive that someone can have to think differently about the planet and to treasure it and to value it and to preserve it than to see, but it's God's. It's not ours. It's God's. We are here on earth with a responsibility, with a creation responsibility to care for it. And then this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to that, the bottom line of which is everybody is your neighbor. Everybody is your neighbor. So when we read about the Australians caught up in the bushfires or the Indians facing flooding in Kerala, um, uh, or the, the Pacific Islands starting to be inundated by the rising ocean. Should we care about those people? Well, yes, of course we should care about those people. They are our neighbors in the sight of God. It's not about putting America first. I don't know, 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 the UK first. You, you can see this is part of the reaction, isn't it, in the world today, is, well, let's just look after our own. Let's just look after our own. Let's be nationalistic. Let's be introspective. Let's put me first, and let's not worry about all those people you know, out there. Let, they can look after themselves. We need to look after ourselves. This is not a Christian understanding, is it? This is not a Christian understanding. If we loved our neighbor... If the world took hold of that, if, if the world accepted the teaching of Jesus Christ, they think, you know, so we all need to do something about this. This is going to affect our neighbors. It's going to affect us before too long either. But it will affect our neighbors whom we should love. And then as I've already mentioned, just think about the Lord's Prayer. You know, we are here to see God's will done on earth. And... The church seeks to do that in all kinds of ways, doesn't it? The church seeks to serve humanity that God's will may be done on earth through innumerable ministries and acts of compassion and care and mercy. Uh, the church does what it can. You know, we, uh, we have a... We have a food bank in Tewkesbury. We, we discovered in, in Tewkesbury there's a, there's a food bank which does a really great work for the, amongst the poorer people within the area in which we live. Um, but praying that prayer, when we pray that prayer, it, it gives us motivation and purpose. I, you know, in that passage that I read from Luke, uh, you say, well, Andrew, you know, Jesus said these things would happen. Jesus, Jesus said these things would happen. But he, but he didn't say he was in favor of these things happening. He gave a warning about what was coming on the earth. He didn't say, and of course, because I prophesy that it's God's will, I don't think you can read that into the passage. 
He was just saying, this is, beware of what will happen on the earth because of what men will do. But as my people, as my people, you need to... Um, see, I, I, the significance of what he said, he said, lift up your heads, which is a kind of a metaphor, isn't it? But it's the opposite of despair. When you despair, you hang down your head, don't you? That's the kind of picture. Somebody in despair hangs down their head. But Jesus said, when you see these things happening, as Christians, I want you to lift up your heads. Lift up your heads. Do not despair. And, and stand. That word stand is a very powerful word, isn't it? It's a, that word stand occurs, for example, in Ephesians 6, when it's talking about spiritual warfare. To stand. To stand up. Well, when you stand up, you stand up because you're ready to do something, aren't you? Instead of just sitting down and nodding off, when you stand... You stand because I'm ready to do something. I'm ready to act. And that's what Jesus is saying. Be ready to act. Get up. Be ready to act. Be ready to do something. Now, you know, when, you, when you look at the things I've described to you, you think, well, Andrew, what can I do? You know, I'm just one person. There are six billion other people on the planet. What difference can I possibly make? Well, the, the thing is, folks, that all six million of us need to do something different. We can't kind of... Well, I'll just let the other five million, you know, five billion, nine hundred ninety-nine million worry about it. You know, it's, I'll just stay as I am. This is this is the nature of the crisis. It needs all of humanity to respond to it. So it kind of starts with us. None of us can say, "Well, it doesn't." You know, I don't matter. Well, all of us matter. That's the nature of what we look at here. Now, it's not easy to think. Well, what do I do? What you kind of feel trapped in the system. You kind of feel trapped in the system. So at our church in Tewkesbury, um, we've, uh, we've formed a committee. Churches are good at forming committees, aren't they? You know, there's a problem. Let's form a committee. You know? So we've, we've formed what we call the Creation Care Committee. And it, interestingly, it was triggered by a letter from the young people's group to the church council saying, our church needs to become more eco-friendly. And here's 50 ideas that our church could follow to become more eco-friendly. Wow, isn't that amazing? Isn't it interesting that it's the young people who are taking the lead on this? So in response to that, the church council said, oh, we, that's why we need a committee, you see, because we need to respond to this. We'll form a committee. So Sarah and I are on this committee. And um, so we're, we're only just started, but we're going to have a green week in our church in May where we're going to really try to take the church through this stuff. But in Lent, because I, I know this will come as a shock horror to you, but we're going to an Anglican church at the moment. But actually, it's, it's the church in Tewkesbury that's most like Shirley Baptist. It just happens to be C of E. But, um, uh, it, uh, so in Lent, we, we thought through the six weeks of Lent, we could present some aspect of our lives where we could start to make changes that would help to address this crisis. Now, all these steps seem very little steps, but this is what we on the planet need to do, we as Christians need to do. So I was going to get Sarah to share something because we, we're functioning as a double act nowadays. And um, so Sarah's going to talk about food. I've already mentioned food is one of the big areas. So in our household, Sarah's in charge of food. Um, she does the shopping, she kind of does the cooking. I, I'm, I'm pretty good at beans on toast, but the more difficult stuff I leave to her. So um, I'm going to leave Sarah to talk about this. And I think we've got a slide for you. Yes. Yeah, and hopefully you've got some notes. 
There we go. Right, so hopefully, <coughs> hopefully you can all see the chart. Now, that's quite a significant figure to say that 26% of the greenhouse gas emissions are from food. So, I mean, that's, that's a, big, a big amount. When you then break that down, animal products make up 58% of that 26. Okay, and then you look again at the animal products and beef and lamb make up 50% of the animal products. So when you work that all through, it comes down to about 8% is of, of all emissions are from beef and lamb. So we decided that what we would do is stop buying beef and lamb. Um, and as I looked into this a bit more, I thought, well, what am I missing out on? And what I discovered is, of course, livestock are routinely fed with antibiotics to make them grow larger. And one of the products, one of the problems that we have is resistance to antibiotics. So not eating food that has been fed with antibiotics is a good thing. Similarly, a reduction in meat and dairy products results in lower cholesterol levels, another good thing. If you wander up and down the aisles of your supermarket, you'll find that meat and dairy products are relatively expensive when you compare them to plant-based food. So just from those things alone, switching your diet is likely to result in a healthier and a cheaper lifestyle. So getting down to the nitty-gritty a bit more, most people eat far more protein than they actually need. Apparently, a fairly sedentary woman needs about 46 grams of protein a day, and a man about 56 grams. You're talking two ounces. And when you think of all the foodstuffs that contain protein, so you've got milk and cheese and eggs as well as meat, you only need around two ounces of protein. So most people could actually reduce their portion size of meat by 50% with no ill effects to their health whatsoever. You can try eating either no beef and lamb or less beef and lamb. If you find that too difficult, then have a look at where it comes from. Try to source your beef or your lamb from organic farms that are local, so they haven't traveled a long way. And if they are organic, then they are not fed hormones and antibiotics. If you find the idea of not eating beef difficult because of the sort of food you like, you can try replacing beef mince with corn. Um, we've tried that once or twice, and it's fine. It's, it's fine. You need a few herbs and spices with it, but then you do with beef anyway. 
Um, try introducing one or two vegetarian meals each week. It's surprisingly easy to do. And you'll find that, again, you'll, you'll, you'll start to get the taste for them. And you think, yes, this is, this is quite nice. I'm not too worried about having meat with it. A simple thing with dairy. If you have a cereal in the morning for breakfast, try using a plant-based milk. There's soya, there's almond, there's hazelnut. Um, Andrew, Andrew likes his um, muesli in the morning with nuts, so I, I buy almond or hazelnut milk, which he finds is, is really nice. You can try experimenting vegetarian sausages if you still like it to look like meat. Some of these are, are really quite nice. And with regard to vegetables, try to buy more locally produced seasonal food because that makes a big difference. Think about what it is you're, you're buying. You may find that your supermarket says, for example, Scottish strawberries, and you think, oh, they're, you know, they haven't come on an aeroplane. They've been grown relatively locally. But if they're grown in November, then they've been grown in a hothouse, which has been heated with fossil fuels. So it takes a little bit of thinking around, a little bit of, of getting used to, but you can make a big difference and still stay healthy. Now you can see, for the first time in my life, and I'm kind of ashamed to say this, for the first time in my life, I've realized that the way that I eat and what I eat can be and should be an intrinsic part of my Christian discipleship. I never thought, I've never said that before. I've never really thought that before. But given what I've shared with you, you can see why I, why I decided to think that. I mean, it's not entirely surprising when you think that throughout the Old Testament, the Jews were given a lot of regulations about what they should eat. It's a lot as though God has never shown an interest in our diet. With the Jews in the Old Testament, there was a lot of interest in what people could and couldn't eat and why. And it's interesting to think about why God told us to eat and not, or not eat certain things. But you can see that if we care for our world, for our planet, for our neighbor, actually what we eat is really significant. I mean, it, it still comes to me as something of a surprise to say that. But it's true. It is very, very true. And we could go on to talk about other things, but there isn't really the time. So let me just finish with just saying this. Um, this climate crisis, this environmental crisis, you know, it's not just something for the activists or the scientists. It's a spiritual crisis. I hope you've got the sense of that. It's a spiritual crisis. What is the church, what are we as Christians going to say and do about it? Well, we need to find out these facts and talk about these facts and then think about, so just how is my Christian faith in the Creator, in love, in the will of God, how does that become relevant? How do I make that relevant in this context in which we live? And as you do that, as you will find with Sarah's example, you start to live differently. You take a few little steps, nothing earth-shattering, 
but you start to take steps because you think, if I start to take these steps, if more and more people take these steps, we become part of a solution rather than just being part of the problem. And I trust that our faith and our hope in God and Jesus' words that we should stand up in these circumstances, that those things will take hold of us and help us to live differently to God's glory. Amen. Amen.